You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's now open God's Word to the Scripture readings this morning. In the first place from Psalm 46. For the director of music of the sons of Korah, according to Alamot, a song. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And we also turn to Romans, where we'll read chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, Faithful in prayer. 
Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We also turn to the Belgic Confession, specifically Article 28. Everyone's duty to join the church. We believe, since this holy assembly and congregation is the assembly of the redeemed, and there is no salvation outside of it, that no one ought to withdraw from it, content to be by himself, no matter what his status or standing may be. But all and everyone are, are obliged to join it and unite with it, maintaining the unity of the church. They must submit themselves to its instruction and discipline, bend their necks under the yoke of Jesus Christ, and serve the edification of the brothers and sisters according to the talents which God has given them as members of the same body. To observe this more effectively, it is the duty of all believers, according to the word of God, to separate from those who do not belong to the church and to join this assembly wherever God has established it. They should do so even though the rulers and edicts of princes were against it, and death or physical punishment might follow. All, therefore, who draw away from the church or fail to join it act contrary to the ordinance of God. This morning I preach to you God's Word as it's been summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 21. And this morning in particular we're looking at question and answer 55. What do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that believers, all and everyone, as members of Christ, have communion with Him and share in all His treasures and gifts. Second, that everyone is duty-bound to use His gifts readily and cheerfully for the benefit and well-being of the other members. Beloved congregation, Christ Jesus our Lord. There's no doubt about it, the, the human body is incredible. It's a, it's a fascinating part of God's creation. Even if you, you just scratch the surface when you're looking at it, you'll, you'll fall down in awe of the creator of this wonderful organism. 
And if you go deeper, look a little closer, more and more wonder and mystery await you. There are so many things about the human body that, that science and medicine still don't understand. One thing we have come to understand is that there are some parts of the body that we can do without and others that we can't. Much of the human body consists of parts that we absolutely need. That's true on the the large-scale level of systems and organs. Normally, you can't live without a brain. And you can't live without a heart or, or lungs or kidneys and so on. But it's also true on a cellular level. In his book, Darwin's Black Box, Michael Behe, who's a biochemist, shows how several cellular systems are built entirely of parts that are absolutely necessary. So, for example, just like a mouse trap needs every single component to work, so also the process of blood clotting requires every single part. If you want to know how that works, I encourage you to read the book, Darwin's Black Box. The same is true for the human eye. Every single part needs to be in place for your eye to work. Behe calls this irreducible complexity. Irreducible complexity is his argument against Darwinian evolution. But what does this have to do with the communion of saints? Well, twice in question and answer 55, we find the word members. We are members of Christ. The first part. And then we also find that there are other members as well. Well, that's what we call organic language. Or to to put it another way, body language. Though not in the sense that we usually talk about body language. With the word member, we're calling up the image of a body. And in Scripture, we find the expression body of Christ, don't we? And it's used in connection with the church. The church is the body of Christ. And so the believers within the church are members or they are parts of that body. 1 Corinthians 12 is one of the most important passages about that. In verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And we need to note who Paul is writing to here. It's the church at Corinth. He says to that particular local church, you are the body of Christ. Now that expression, admittedly, can have a broader usage. But in most places in the New Testament, the expression body of Christ is referring to a local church. And it is primarily this body of Christ in the local church where we find and we experience the communion of saints. Communion of saints. Communion refers to a relationship. Communion can also be 
expressed with the word fellowship. And the saints, meaning of saints, saints are simply God's people, God's holy ones, those who have been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. Those people, the saints, are united to Christ by faith. As members of His body, they share in who He is. They have a relationship with Him and also with one another. They're united not only to Christ, but also to one another as members of Christ's body. And so if we're to define the communion of saints, we could say that it is that union with Christ and with other believers that is to be found within the church. This morning we'll unpack what it means to believe and to experience the communion of saints in this local church. We'll see that it involves both blessings and duties. When the catechism we confess that believers, all and everyone, as members of Christ, have communion with Him and share in all His treasures and gifts. Now those treasures and gifts, they, they fall into two general categories. In the first, we find what we can call the general benefits of Christ. These are the benefits that are given to each and every believer. And we find them sprinkled generously throughout the entire Bible. It's the good news of the Gospel. For instance, we, we read in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, it is because of Him, speaking about God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Those are benefits. Or 2 Corinthians 5.21. I love this verse. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Beautiful, glad tidings. And we, we find those not only in the New Testament, we also find them in the Old now take that passage we, we read from Psalm 46. In verse 4, we read, There is a river whose streams may glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. In the context of the Old Testament, this is clearly a reference to Jerusalem. Jerusalem contained the temple, which was regarded as God's dwelling place. And it was where God dwelt. Very real sense. And Jerusalem, too, was often referred to as being the city of God. That leaves us with a question. Because anyone who's ever looked at a map knows that there is no river flowing through Jerusalem. But the, the psalm says there is a river. Jerusalem is one of those rare cities that's not located near any substantial body of water. So why does this psalm say there is a river in Jerusalem? Well, it's true that there was and there is no river of water flowing through Jerusalem. However, in the days that this psalm was written, there was a river of blood when the sacrifices were offered in the temple, there was a lot of blood. 
Sources outside of the Bible tell us of how a plumbing system was installed in the temple just to deal with the blood. Spring water was diverted into the temple and and the floor was sloped, just a, a slight angle, probably not even perceivable. And that the water would come in at the top of the slope and would, would wash away the, the blood at the bottom into a drainage system, a system of pipes. And those pipes would lead outside the temple walls. And once outside the temple, this blood would come out into the open air and there was literally a creek of blood flowing through the streets of Jerusalem. This is the river whose streams make glad the city of God. Why is that? Because the blood brought the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. It didn't do that by itself, of course. It it did it because of who it pointed forward to. Because it pointed to Jesus Christ, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In this way, the the river whose streams make glad the city of God speaks of the general benefits of Christ. Those general benefits, they made God's people glad in the Old Testament. They were living in the shadows. How much more shouldn't we be glad today knowing the, the reality of what Christ has done? Living in the light. The city of God, the dwelling place of the Most High, is His church. The church today is where God's mighty river of benefits flows. That's why we say with the Belgian Confession in Article 28 that there is no salvation outside of the church. Because this is where we normally, that's the key word, normally share in all the treasures and gifts of Christ beginning with the, the general benefits that all believers share equally. Let's never forget it. Let's never take it for granted that when we believe in Christ, we are united to Him. And because of that union, we receive every single promise that's given in connection with Him. That's why the Catechism speaks of treasures. When you receive a treasure, you're rich. And so we are rich, far richer than we can grasp or imagine with Christ our Savior. And as if the general benefits were not enough, we're also recipients of special benefits or special gifts. These gifts, if we define them, they are they're special abilities to express, celebrate, display, and so communicate Christ in a way that builds up the faith of your fellow believers and so also enriches and enlarges the church. There are several New Testament passages which speak directly about these special gifts, sometimes what we call spiritual gifts. We call them that because they come to us through the Holy Spirit. Now, Romans 12 is just one of those passages. When we come to Romans 12, the very first thing we need to do is remember 
the context. And part of the context is the structure of the book. And the structure of Romans is the same, basically, as that of the Heidelberg Catechism. Three parts, right? Guilt, grace, gratitude. Or, as some would put it, sin, salvation, service. The authors of the Catechism, they didn't suck this structure out of their thumbs. They deliberately followed the pattern of Paul in Romans and also in his other epistles. And so chapter 12 of Romans is towards the end of the book, and it's beginning the section about thankfulness. We know this from the first verse. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. In view of God's mercy. Well, God's mercy is exactly what the Apostle has been writing about for the last few chapters. Praise is what the Apostle had for this God of mercy. At the end of chapter 11, we have that doxology, all the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. To Him be the glory forever, and so on. And praise naturally leads to thanksgiving through an appropriate lifestyle. This is the offering of living sacrifices. And we often think that Christ did away with the sacrifices. He did, except for one. There is still one sacrifice left for the New Testament church, and that is the thank offering. The thank offering is still in place. And the thank offering in the New Testament church is ourselves. Our whole entire life, everything about us, is to be a thank offering for the mercies of God in Christ. And in the context of that thank offering, the Apostle Paul writes about the gifts found within the body of Christ. He says that there are different sorts of gifts, the very first one he mentions is prophesying. Now there is a, a sense in which prophecy no longer functions in the church today. Since we have a completed Bible, and since that Bible is sufficient for all that God wants us to know, we no longer need men and women to give us messages from God, direct messages. However, there is a sense in which prophecy remains as a gift in the church. Because in the Bible, prophecy is more than just telling the future or passing on a direct message from God. The first characteristic of prophecy is that it involves communicating truth about God. In this sense, all of us are called to be prophets, aren't we? As Christians, we are prophets who confess his name. We confess that in the catechism. So the first gift that Paul mentions is prophesying. Another gift that he mentions in verse 7 is serving. That refers to, to helping others in various ways, especially in very hands-on, practical sorts of ways. Some people in the church have more of a knack 
for that than others. Then there's teaching. Some of us enjoy teaching and, and we're good at it. That's also a spiritual gift. So is what we find in verse 8, encouraging. There are people in the church who know, just know how to say the right words at the right time. And those of us on the receiving end, we know what a gift that is. And we, we can sure be thankful for those who have that gift. We can thank God because it comes from the Spirit of God. Who's contributing to the needs of others? There are those who have a gift for, for being aware, for seeing needs around them. And then not only seeing them, but also having the means at hand to be able to help out. Leadership is another spiritual gift from Christ. There are believers who naturally fall into positions of leadership. People know that they can be trusted to steer things in the right way, that these people can be trusted to get things done. And finally, Paul mentions the showing of mercy. This spiritual gift involves compassion. Being able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and know what they're going through. Being able to respond in an appropriate way. Now as we we go through that list that Paul gives in Romans 12, I imagine that our thoughts are going all over the place. Not surprisingly, some of us are reflecting on our own personal inventory of gifts. Thinking, which of those gifts do I have? Others of us are maybe thinking about others in the church, thinking that we can be sure thankful that so-and-so has a gift and really contributes to the body of Christ with that. Both thoughts are natural. What we need to remember is that all of us, each and every one of us, are different. We have different personalities. We have different temperaments. And with those different personalities and temperaments come different gifts from the Holy Spirit. But the important thing to remember is that we all have gifts. Even if they're not the ones mentioned in Romans 12. Because Romans 12 doesn't give a comprehensive list. That's not the the ultimate list of spiritual gifts. It's just partial. You'll find others throughout the Bible. But what we do know for certain is that each and every believer receives spiritual gifts. We know that from passages like Ephesians 4, verse 7. And it shouldn't take a lot of effort to know what His gifts to you are. But if you do have a problem figuring it out, you can ask somebody who knows you well to help you. They should be able to talk with you about it and help you to identify what your spiritual gifts may be. And when we know what our gifts are, we have the duty to use them. The Catechism says it, so does the Belgic Confession. And our confessions say it because it's very clearly in Scripture. Romans 12 lays it out. Paul says that if you have a gift for serving... Use it. If you have a gift for teaching, then teach. And so on. 
And again, this is part and parcel of a, a Christian life of thankfulness, isn't it? We could also think of the, the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. Remember the story? The man who went on a journey, entrusted money to his servants. They were called talents. Apparently worth about a thousand dollars, something like that. And he did so with the expectation that they would use that money. Remember there were three servants and two of them did use the money. They put it to work. They invested it and they gained more. But one didn't. And when the master came back, he was angry at that lazy servant. That servant was thrown out into the darkness. Now that parable, as it happens, it speaks particularly about money, but it's equally applicable to everything the Lord entrusts to us, including our spiritual gifts. We have the duty and we have the calling to use and develop what God gives to us. In the Catechism, we confess that we're duty-bound to use our gifts readily and cheerfully. Those words call to mind what we read in 2 Corinthians 9, 7 about God loving a cheerful giver. Now again, those words, they, they speak about money. It's true, but as we saw from Romans 12, giving is also a spiritual gift. All the gifts we have from the Spirit are meant to be used and they're meant to be used cheerfully and eagerly and readily. And here too, we can think of another Bible passage. 1 Peter 4, verse 9. Actually, I noticed that it's on the, the cover of our liturgy sheet. That wasn't planned. It's just there. Amazing. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. And there too, we, we can't rationalize that and say, well, Peter was just talking about hospitality. Hospitality is not one of my gifts. I teach. One of my gifts is teaching, and sure, I do that with grumbling, but you know that's okay because the Bible doesn't say anything about that. That is a rationalization, and I think all of us will recognize that's a very superficial one at that. All spiritual gifts are meant to be used readily, cheerfully, not just the ones where we have a direct command, such as with hospitality. I just mentioned 1 Peter 4, verse 9. If we continue into 1 Peter 4, verse 10, we read these words, Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. That speaks to the purpose for which we use our gifts. I think we can talk about a threefold purpose. And 1 Peter 4 verse 10 gives us the first two reasons. First of all, we're to use our spiritual gifts within the communion of saints for the benefits of others as individuals. Now here we're thinking of fellow individual believers. So for instance, if we, we have a gift for encouragement, I know some of you do, we think about so-and-so and 
who's having a rough time right now, that particular individual, we go to them and we, we, we use our gift for them. But second of all, we also use our spiritual gifts within the communion of saints for the benefit of others as a whole, as a corporate body. Here we're thinking of the church as a body. If we have a certain spiritual gift, we use it so that the whole body will be edified and built up. And I think this is where we, we struggle the most because our culture with its narcissism and individualism makes it hard for us to think in these corporate terms. But in this and in so many other ways, we're called to be counter-cultural and to think not only in terms of individuals, but also in terms of a corporate organism or body. How can we use our gifts to build up the body as a whole, and especially this body of Christ where God has placed us? So that's the first two aspects of the purpose for which we're to use our gifts. The third one has to do with the glory of the head, who is Christ. This isn't disconnected from the first two. In fact, all three are linked together in a tight-knit unity. When we use our gifts and others in the communion of saints see those gifts being used, what happens? Well, I hope what happens is that that praise and thanks are given to God the Father and to Christ, the giver of the gifts, and to the Holy Spirit who brings those gifts to us. We do want to see that happening, don't we? We want God to be praised. And Ephesians 1 says very clearly that as a church, we're about that. We're about giving more praise and glory to God on high. And so whether we're on the receiving end or the giving end of the use of the spiritual gifts, or whether we're even just simply observing, we've watched it. Watch someone using their spiritual gifts in the church. All of us together, in the communion of saints, we are to be making much of God. Lifting Him up. Showing that we value Him. We esteem Him above everything and everyone. That we recognize Him as the one from whom all blessings flow. And isn't that our first and our highest calling in life? The communion of saints found and experienced here in this local church. Now to be sure, don't get me wrong, it extends beyond the local church, but it's here first. That's why the catechism has question and answer 55 in the same Lord's Day as question and answer 54 regarding the church. The same church where we are living members is the body of Christ, where we share in His treasures and gifts and use those gifts for the good of others. Now there is a, a saying that charity starts at home. 
Charity starts at home. That's not only a good saying, it's also a biblical principle. 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Those are pretty harsh words. Sure, we want to help others, but charity starts at home. And that principle applies equally to the local church. In the use of our spiritual gifts, our calling is first of all to use those gifts here for the benefits of God's people here in this place. The communion of saints is a a relationship that brings rich blessings. In Christ, we are, we are gifted with treasures of many sorts. It also brings with it responsibilities and duties. The same Savior who gives the gifts, He also gives His Spirit to help us in the use of those gifts. Let's now pray to Him. Let's ask Him for His help in this. Lord Jesus, our Savior, we praise You for all Your gifts and treasures. We thank You for Your shed blood, which gifts each and every one of us with salvation. We praise You for being our reconciliation and redemption. We adore You for being our justification, our sanctification, our life and salvation. You are the the treasure, the pearl of greatest price. And we also thank you for the special gifts that you lavish on us. As we look around our congregation, we see so many wonderful things that you have done and are doing. Your work is evident, and for it we praise you. We also seek your help and the help of your Holy Spirit so that the special gifts you've given us would be used readily and cheerfully. Help us, Lord, when we don't feel like using our gifts. Help us when we we feel like it's too much. Pray that you would strengthen us to use what you've given for the good of each other and for the good of this church as a whole. And we pray that above all, through the use of our gifts, your name would be more honored. We long to see you praised above all, see you valued and esteemed. Oh, help us in this with your spirit. Animate us and fill us so that we as church make much of you. Hear us for your name's sake. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.